This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. My guest on Cut to the Chase today is Suffolk County Sheriff Errol Toulon Jr. He was first elected. Well, first of all, Sheriff Toulon, I want to say hello and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Sheriff Errol Toulon was first elected in 2017 in Suffolk County. The sheriff is actually an elected position, unlike Nassau County, and was just reelected last year, late last year. He is the first African-American sheriff in Suffolk and actually the first African-American elected official, if you're not counting judges, in the county of Suffolk, which is quite an accomplishment in and of itself. So, Errol, you are someone who I had the opportunity and the privilege of working with. And I just want to say off the bat, I want to thank you, fellow Democrat on Long Island, who understands the importance of law and order. You know, I asked you to serve with me on the common sense task force having to do with bail reform. And I really appreciate your work on that. I appreciate your very sensible and really non-political take on things. Uh, so before we get into that, I do have to point out that you did serve as a bat boy. You were grew up in the Bronx. So you served as a bat boy for the New York Yankees for a couple of years. What was that like? And what did you learn from that experience that helps in your current career? You know, it was probably one of the earliest lessons I had in life on leadership and an organization. I served during the 1979 season when Thurman Munson passed away, and then the 1980 season when we lost three straight to the Royals in the playoffs. But seeing the work ethic of professional athletes, you know, we turn on our TVs, we listen to the announcers, the players run out of the dugout onto the field, and the game starts. But being a bat boy, I was able to see the many hours before a game that the players, whether it was taking infield, batting practice, talking to the coaches, getting treatment from the trainers, or even sometimes even working out what they did to keep their craft. And one of the things that you had to realize is that if they didn't perform, if they had a few bad games, there was always someone looking to take their job. And I think one of the things that I learned very early from Mr. Steinbrenner was how he treated people, how he ran his organization so professionally, the integrity. I mean, even to this day, the New York Yankees do not have a name on the back of their jerseys. They still have to be groomed with no beards or any extensive facial hair. And it was a huge learning lesson for a 17-year-old kid in the South Bronx. Wow. And you got to see it from the inside at such an interesting time, too. And it's nice to hear you say something nice about Mr. Steinbrenner. He has he has quite a colorful reputation. Yes, and I, I can tell you just the way he, you know, I've only actually saw him twice 
storm into the clubhouse to go into the manager's office, but the permeation of his of the way he wanted his organization to be run from the top down, you can see, you know, even as a young kid. Hmm. So for people who don't understand what the Suffolk County Sheriff does, enlighten us. Sure. This, the Sheriff of Suffolk County is the highest ranking law enforcement person in Suffolk County. The Sheriff oversees the two jails in Riverhead and in Yapank. He also, or she also, whoever that person may be, has deputy sheriffs. I have about 850 correction officers and 250 deputy sheriffs that not only patrol the roadways on the eastern end of Long Island, we have a pistol licensing section that issues pistol licensing to those that are eligible for the, that reside on the east end. We have a domestic violence unit, a warrant section. We have a Marine Bureau we provide uh, transportation for the inmates to and from court and to the hospitals. And most recently, a year and a half ago, we performed the ERPOs, the extreme risk protection orders, with, and also evictions. Those are part of our civil process. So there's a lot that goes in there. I just have a quick question. You mentioned pistol licensing. Are you seeing an increase in the number of applications these days? We are starting to see a slight increase in our, our pistol licensing. We did notice it during the height of not during the height of COVID, but after the social unrest that occurred in, after May of 2020, after George Floyd was killed. But we are noticing applications and more inquiries about how to get a pistol licensing, a pistol license here in Suffolk County. So you had a great op-ed not too long ago in Newsday about bail reform. And, you know, we don't have to beat a dead horse. I think you and I have talked about this a lot over the past couple of years. And so instead of focusing on the negative, you're looking at how can inmates in the jail be helped? What can we do? And I know you have some very serious initiatives having to do with substance abuse and mental health services. What are you seeing in the inmates and how can you help them? You know, it's something I, I've seen since 1982. Actually, at the end of this month will be 40 years when I first raised my right hand to become a New York City correction officer in New York City. By the way, did you work at, at Rikers? Yes, for 25 years. Wow. Yes, 25. Interesting years where I learned a lot. But, you know, when then Governor Mario Cuomo closed a lot of our mental health institutions, we noticed that most of those individuals either wound up in jail or on the streets of New York. And jails are now the largest provider of mental for those that have mental health issues in New York State. And so we're looking to identify so just those to pause for a and minute. work with various service providers. For one, those individuals that are in our custody, or and secondarily, to help those individuals so they never wind up in jail, where there's services in the community so that they can get the necessary help. So they're not going to rehab, they're not getting help, they might not be able to afford it or have the wherewithal, so jail is it. Jail is where they're getting the help. Exactly, and one of the things, especially for those that are incarcerated with us, we're looking to connect them to the services in the various communities they're returning back to so that they don't return back or they don't recidivate, commit, or reoffend. And it's very important for us, if we help these individuals that are in our custody, not only are we helping them, we're hoping that there's one less victim in our community that they may need to commit a crime to either support themselves or because of the mental health instability that they have. Mm. And do you have a sense of what kind of results you're getting? Well, the one program that we have, which is our START Resource Center, and START is an acronym for Sheriff's Transition and Reentry Team, 
you know, the national average for recidivism is about 60%. Ours is between 11 to 15% of those that participate in our program. We've had, we actually started it right in the beginning of COVID, ironically, it was mm. around February of 2020. So we've had close to 700 people participate in our program, and we've seen a, a very high success rate that I wish our New York State legislature would take notice of the work that we're doing here in Suffolk. Well, let me amplify that. You said nationwide recidivism rate is about 60 to 70 percent. Did I hear that correctly? That's correct. And yours is about 11 to 15, 1, 5 percent for this program? Yes, exactly. That's incredible. So we should really, uh, I'm glad you're telling me about this. I think this could potentially become a national model. You know, that's what we're hoping. We start our reentry the minute someone enters our correctional facility. We don't wait until 30 days before they're released or even the day of their release. We create an individualized reentry plan for each person, identifying the needs, whether it's an ID card, employment, housing, mental health issues, you know, whatever it might be, we're able to pinpoint what the, what the needs are of that individual fairly quickly and then work with them while they're here and, more importantly, when we know that they're returning back to our communities. That's really interesting. Are you speaking with anyone from the state to see if they will have a look at this and maybe this is something that could be replicated elsewhere? I mean, with the way crime is, perception and reality in New York right now, this could be a real positive, this could have a real positive impact. Well, to answer your question, we have spoken to many people under the previous governor's administration, various state assembly and state senators in Suffolk County. You know, it's very unusual from my perspective. It, it seems like they're fixated on one one way of fixing the problem instead of talking to all of us, something you and I have talked about many times, of talking to some local officials as to what's going on in our communities and what we think, what the community can do better to help these individuals. Hmm. A lot has been written about MS-13 and other gangs on Long Island, and I think it surprises a lot of people who don't live on Long Island that this is a reality. What impact does that have on the jails in Suffolk? Well, I went to El Salvador in early uh, 2018 to get a better understanding. I was there for a week mm. to learn more about MS-13, having my boots on the ground, mm. seeing how it affects the, the, the mainland of where most of these individuals came from. Now, a few months later, in later 2018, I went to Los Angeles because MS-13, mm. the Bloods and the Crips, all started there. That's and, right. You know, it's their American-made. A lot of people don't realize that. Yes. So, you know, I, I was able to get a, a real understanding not only on, on their homeland, but also where the, these gangs originated. And so we've, when I first started in 2018, MS-13 was the fourth ranking gang in numbers in our facilities. So mm. the Bloods are number one, the Crips number two, Blues the Latin Kings three, mm-hmm. and MS-13 four. As of today, it's the Bloods and now MS-13 wow. uh, gang members are number two. So we, we work very hard with our um, uh, to not only identify these gang members, but more importantly, we want to make sure that we don't have any violence inside of our facilities Anyone that they're communicating with on the outside that could be a potential threat to someone that is on in our communities does not occur working with the Suffolk County Police Department and the District Attorney's Office. And we have a, have a robust intelligence unit 
that really identifies a lot of key uh, data points on every person inside of our facilities. I'm curious if any of these identified gang members have been in the START Resource Center program and how that went, if there was success there. So as of now, none. Yeah. None whatsoever, which is really a, a difficult thing. You know, we've really tried to encourage, and we have had inmates, uh, those that are incarcerated, those that were previously incarcerated, um, refer many people to our START Resource Center for assistance, but unfortunately, none of those have been identified yet. Right. Can people volunteer if they hear about it? If, if there's an inmate there, can they say, hey, I want to be part of this? Or are they chosen? You know, the, we don't have inmates that are volunteers. We do have various service providers from New Hour to ECLI, Family Service League, Spin the Yard and Wine Dance are, are just a, a few that comes to my recollection that are really working to hard because they're actually embedded in the communities and they also add some legitimacy to what we're trying to do. Mm, yeah. One of the most infamous murders in Suffolk County are the still unsolved Gilgo murders of about 12 sex workers who were killed in an isolated beach, beach community. And I bring that up because sex trafficking is a real problem that it doesn't, it never really gets the coverage that I think it deserves. Uh, a, a lot of the, this is according to the Safe Center of Long Island, a lot of the victims of sex trafficking are actually from Long Island. They're not brought from other places. But at young ages, they're put into the sex trade, you know, terrible abuse, unimaginable things happen. Do you find this, whether they're the victims or the perpetrators, that they you they come to, with into the jail, into the jail, are they part of what you see in your work? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yes, actually, and you're, you're 100% correct. When I met with our federal partners regarding some gang-related issues here in Suffolk County, and it was interesting that one of the individuals participating in the meeting said to me, we're more concerned about human trafficking or sex trafficking in Suffolk County than we are about gang-related issues. And so we mm. created the first human trafficking unit in any jail or prison in the United States. So our staff interviews every inmate, specifically our female inmates, and we identify so many women, some that don't even realize that they're they have been trafficked mm. because they've been under the influence of some sort of substance that the person has forced upon them or has they are substance abusers. And what happens is, is that after a period of time, the trafficker will say, well, now I want money because you've been using my drugs. The female cannot pay for it. And the only way for her to reimburse them, if I can use that term, mm -hmm. is by actually you know, performing sex acts. And so we work very hard and very closely with uh, federal partners, our local partners. We have staff on the Gilgo Task Force created mm -hmm. by Commissioner Rodney Harrison. Mm -hmm. And we feel very confident that in the near future, 
we will see some positive results of, of this task force. Oh, wow. You've very much piqued my curiosity. Actually, the first person I interviewed for this podcast is a guy named Gus Garcia Roberts. He's a former Newsday reporter who wrote a book about about, well, a little bit about Gilgo, but mostly about former Suffolk County Police Chief Jimmy Burke. But but I digress. Why is it, I'm always so curious, why is it that the sex trafficking issue doesn't get more press attention? Why do you think that is? Is it because it's this underclass that people don't feel that it affects them? It's a maybe some quote unquote victimless crime. What do you think that is? All of the above, uh, victimless crime, also, many people do not believe that it's occurring right here in yeah. Suffolk County. They think that these are individuals that are coming across the border, or coming from another state. Many don't realize that these are young women, Nassau, Suffolk County, New York State. The only the tragedy that I find is that we can't identify them. We only identify them when they're here in our custody, which means that they're 18 years of age and older. And some have, have told us their life life experiences of 12, 13, 14 years of age, trafficked by their uncles, their fathers, mm. their brothers, their mothers, you wow. know, which is so, you know, so shameful that any individual would have to live like this. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And how, how prevalent do you think it is? So I would say 10% of our population are, are female mm-hmm. inmates. Of that 10%, I would say at least 60% of those women are victims. Wow, that many. You know, we work very hard not only to identify them, but also we realize that they're victims and we want to make sure that they get the services that they need. And the the whole human trafficking unit within our organization has permeated to those that haven't that aren't even directly involved daily. We had one case where two men were attempting to bail a woman out and the female officer that just had some suspicion that something was wrong, mm. contacted, you know, our, our staff in the human trafficking unit. And clearly these were, there were two Johns that mm-hmm. were trying to bail her out. And so we were able to get her, we, we accepted the bail. We were able to get her out of the jail through a different entrance mm-hmm. through with some of our service providers to a shelter and, you know, not with these two individuals. So, you know, I think the, the whole issue is really resonating and better understanding with the men and women that work within the sheriff's office. That's great. I mean, that awareness, that sort of sixth sense that your officer had could very well have saved her life. Yes, and that sixth sense and that awareness is something we like to talk about in our various communities. But, you know, some communities are a little reluctant to even want to understand or accept that this may be a problem Mm -hmm. here. But we will continue to do what we do here in the office and educate as many people in our community that wants to be educated. So speaking of which, how do you, since you are primarily working in the jail and with your deputy sheriffs, a few other things as well, how do you interface with the wider community? How does that happen? I know you're in the paper a lot. That's great. You're on a lot of task forces. I see you at forums. How do you do that one-on-one connection with the communities? You know, I just go out and I do it. It's very difficult sometimes. It's it's a very hard place to put myself in. But in order for me to understand what's going on in many of the communities here in Suffolk County, I have to get out and I have to talk. And if I can't, then my staff has to. And we have to have an honest conversation about what's going on. Some Some expectations are very unrealistic. 
and some are, you know, these are real concerns that people are having. And, you know, perception is reality. If they feel something's occurring in their community, they're going to believe it. And I think we need to address it. And even if it's not something under the purview of the sheriff's office, I make sure that whatever governing body is responsible will know. And I will follow up myself because if someone's asking me something, I know my name uh, has been attached to a problem that someone is having. And I want them to know that I'm doing the best that I can to address it. You know, that's interesting. In Nassau County, the sheriff is appointed. In Suffolk, the sheriff isn't elected. So you are technically an elected official. Some might say politician. I don't really see you as a typical politician. But a regular politician, whether they're a legislator or an executive, you know, there's a lot of happy talk. You can go out and talk about fun stuff at the parks and we're paving the roads and we're doing this and it's all this, you know, there's some negative stuff, but a lot of happy stuff too. But with your job as a sheriff, it's it's heavy. It's all heavy stuff. And I can see why you might find some resistance. People don't want to hear about certain things. They don't want to say this is they or they want to think this is not happening in our community. Or if you talk about this out loud, it might hurt our real estate values. So that puts you in a tough spot. You know, it does. But I feel like I'm at a point in my life where I'm just going to tell people the way it is from my career and professional experience. Uh, also academic. And I think it's very important. that I think I've garnered a lot of trust among many individuals in our community. And people know that I have the best interests of the community. Sometimes, you know, you try to make the best decision possible with every everything that you learned or the tools that you have. But people have to know you're trying to do the best job possible. So I, I think that's uh, something that I think many people realize, at least here in Suffolk. Yes, uh, clearly, clearly. How can the jails be helpful finding people jobs? Obviously, you've been so in jail, you're in and out of the, the system. The Suffolk County Department of Labor working with us. We have a staff member assigned inside our, our facilities. They also work with our Start Resource Center. And, you know, it's very important to see the job trends, to see what skills that people have that are incarcerated who are returning back to our community that may be appropriate for them to embark on when they leave here because those are some of the barriers of entry. If they don't have an ID card, if they don't have a job, where are they going to get housing or secure housing? So it becomes very cyclical on the needs that are present. Right, it becomes a chicken and egg thing. Exactly. And so we really want to make sure that we can address as many of those issues as possible, even as much as maybe not even having a birth certificate sometimes you know, we're assisting them with getting or obtaining a birth certificate. And so we're really trying to make sure, not only from the employment aspect, but the housing, any social needs, connecting them to faith-based organizations within their communities, that there's a support system so that these people don't fall down again. Right. How important is it for you to work with other jurisdictions, whether it's the Suffolk Police Department or, you know, the other smaller police departments within Suffolk, federal law enforcement, Nassau County, New York City, how are those relationships? And is it important to maintain them? You know, it, is, it, it seemed very fractured when I first started in 2018, but I can tell you we have a great working relationship with all of our federal and local partners, sharing intelligence, communicating. I speak with the police commissioner and district attorney at least once or twice a week, which many people say is unheard of. But mm. I think for us to understand what's going on, are people who are doing some of the jobs that are very sensitive. It's important for the leaders of those organizations to communicate. 
But more importantly, the line staff, the men and women that are constantly gathering intelligence or gathering information that we're constantly talking. Some information may not be something that's useful right now, but if you have it in the database, if you have it written down somewhere that you can possibly connect the dots later on with maybe some gang-related activity, drug-related activity, sex trafficking activity, mm-hmm. you know, we're able to put all these things together. One of the things you have to realize with the Sheriff's Office is the fact that we have every person that's arrested in Suffolk County that may not be able to meet a bail eligible requirement in our facilities. And so from Montauk to Amityville, North Shore to South Shore, we have all these men and women and they're always talking, they're talking on the phones, there are other ways for us uh, to gather our, our intelligence. And it's it's a way of really communicating and getting it out to our law enforcement partners. Hmm. So Another question, you know, I'm as I'm sitting here, I'm sitting in New York City, Rikers Island, it's in the paper all the time, there's lots of problems, you were there for 25 years, you rose through the ranks, what was your, your last position there was quite high? Deputy Commissioner of Operations. Deputy Commissioner of Operations. There's this talk about should it close, should it be replaced with something else? What is your take on that? I know you're in Suffolk, and I know, you know, You know a lot of people there, but is it as bad as it's being portrayed? And do you think it should be shut down? It is horrible working conditions and horrible conditions for the uh, inmates and staff that are working there. One of the things that I I often think about and I speak about is that in the late 1980s, we had almost 25,000 inmates in our custody, not only Mm. on Rikers Island, but in the borough jails. So much so that the city went out and purchased three prison barges from England. Two were housed in Lower Manhattan. Mm-hmm. One, was, uh, which is still in operation, is still in the Bronx. There was the Bronx House of Detention, the Queens House of Detention, the Brooklyn House of mm-hmm. Detention. When our population started to decrease, the borough facilities were then closed and everybody was moved to Rikers Island to centralize the operations, which is a lot better because if you think about some of the things, when inmates are being transferred from a borough facility through a community, you know, they're yelling things off the bus, yelling things while they're being transported on the bus mm-hmm. in the community. They're able to yell things from the windows. Many people that used to walk by the old Bronx House of Detention, mm-hmm. the Yankee Stadium, would hear those vile remarks as they walk by. Inmates are being released from the jails. They're being walking through the various communities those jails are in. Visitors, not just the husbands, the wives, or the mothers or fathers, but some of the former gang members mm. that were released that are coming back to visit someone that's that was that's incarcerated are now walking through the community. So my take would be to uh, remove a jail on Rikers Island and build a new jail, centralize the whole process. The visits on Rikers Island is horrible. There's no reason why someone have, should have to wait five or six hours to go and visit a loved one that's incarcerated. Mm. But I, I would say centralize the, the process on Rikers Island, uh, tear down some of those old jails. You know, so the, I think the last jail that was built on Rikers Island was in the mid-1980s uh, wow. because I was there, and I, I remember those, uh, the last three jails that were built there. So, you know, they're very old. Their mechanisms aren't working properly. Inmates are able to maneuver uh, the cells, the cell doors, so they're able to walk out any time of day, which which poses a security threat to another inmate or to an officer. 
And so I would say rather than spend the billions and billions of dollars and put them in boroughs, in the borough facilities, at least rebuild those jails on Rikers Island and keep it centralized. Well, it makes a lot of sense to me. Errol, I just want to thank you so much. The half hour, as always, has flown by. I want to thank you for your service, and I want to thank you as a fellow Democrat for having a sane voice on law enforcement. Uh, I think it's really important for not just the Democratic Party, but for society as a whole. So keep fighting the good fight. I just have to say one more time, the START Resource Center program, 11 to 15 percent recidivism versus more than 60 percent statewide and nationwide. That is a a model worth looking at. And thanks for coming on Cut to the Chase to talk about it. Thank you for having me. Take care. Bye-bye.